Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network. This is Shelley Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or a bookstore near you. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. So hey, Justin, how you doing tonight? Good. How you doing, Vicki? I'm doing good. I'm excited because I have a really, really old, fabulous friend on tonight. Do you have... You're you're a young guy. You're like 29. But do you have friends that you've like traveled through this you know life so far with? Yeah, yeah, I do. I have a couple of guy friends that I still kept from high school. So we've been friends for for like 14 years now. 14 years. That's cool. You're, you're only 29. That's very cool. Well, our guest tonight. This is like craziness, Justin. But I've known Drew for <laughs> 40 years. Um, which blows my mind that I can even say that because I'm only 30 years old. No, but I, I met Drew when I was, um, we were both 22. So I guess it's like 38 years. It's a long time. And, and what's even better than that is that we've been really friends through all of that. You know, we've, we've stayed in touch and um, we see each other. Drew is a restaurateur. And he's a two-time James Beard Award winner. Um, you might know him because he's partners with Robert De Niro. And he, um, he had this, uh, we worked together at this place called Maxwell's Plum in New York. And um, we were both like right out of college and he was my boss. He was the manager. I was a waiter. And um, we were great friends starting then. And we've been great friends all these years. And so um, after Maxwell's Plum, he worked at this place, Tavern on the Green, a place where we work, but now it's new owners. Anyway, so he had this place called Montrachet. And I went there for my birthday with my mother and my best friend, Joanne. And sitting at the next table was Robert De Niro with his girlfriend at the time, uh, Tukey Smith. And they were, Drew and De Niro were celebrating that day, sealing the partnership on opening together the Tribeca Grill. Wow. And the reason they did that, Robert De Niro wanted to go into partnership with Drew was because he loved Montrachet. So they opened Tribeca Grill and then they opened Nobu and Nobu Next Door and Nobu 57 and Nobu London and Nobu Vegas and, you know, on and on and on. And then Drew turned Montrachet into Cortone and then now into Batard. It was rated last year, Justin, the number one new restaurant in New York City. Do you know what you have to do to have the number one restaurant in New York City? That's I'm right. Crazy. I mean, can you can you imagine, you know, how many restaurants there are in New York and to have yours rated your brand new restaurant rated number one? You know, wow. He's he's the most extraordinary person at what he does, or at least one of them, the most extraordinary in the world. So please welcome Drew Niporent. Hey Drew. Thanks for right. did I get it right? Yeah. Would you proud of you? Do you know how I say it wrong? Because I'm wondering, am I the only one that says Niporent? <laughs> no, no, Niporent is all right too. I mean, you know, uh, my mother used to be well, my mother was an actress. Yeah, we're going to talk. I want to let's that's great. Let's talk about your mom. Yeah. Well, but you know, when it came to pronouncing the name, she'd point to her knee, <laughs> then she'd pour wine, and then she'd pay the rent by sticking her hand out so his knee pour rent. And then everyone said, that's a little too difficult. But anyway, that's the way we did it. But you did great. Well, actually, uh, now I'm going to have that visual in my I wish you would have told me that 38 years ago because now that I got it, I'm going with that. Point to the knee, so pour the, the wine. The neoparente, so I think you did fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, Drew, 
Okay, so, all right. Well, before we talk about your mom, I just wanted to fill people in a little bit on our friendship. We started out at Maxwell's Plum a million years ago when it was the celebrity mecca in New York City in the, in the late right, 70s. Right, groundbreaking place. It was a crazy place. We could talk about it a little bit if you want. I mean, like, I waited on everybody there from, I, I, I waited on Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver when they were on their first date. Were you there then? Um, actually, I don't remember that one, but, you know, the movie uh, with Mia Farrow and Dustin Hoffman. John and uh, Mary. John and Mary. That was that was the film there. And then um, I, I remember Bill Graham, the rock impresario, meeting him there for lunch. I have a menu signed by Dan Fogelberg. So that's very, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was a fabulous uh, artist. Oh, my God, um, yeah. You know, there was a... They, but, Pele used to hang out there, and you're... you're your friend Jimmy Connors, I think, frequents the place once in the blue moon. Yeah, like all the time, constantly. I waited on Ruth Gordon, Woody Allen, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, who were making a lot of trips to the limo. But ev- <laughs> pretty much everybody, everybody who was everybody in that movie, John and Mary, you just mentioned, um, the the point of that movie was that it, Maxwell's was like the original swinging singles bar, like the first of its kind, I believe. And in yeah, that. One of the one of the uh, one of the more uh, you know because the bar was right in the middle of the space. And right. The girls would come to the bar. If you remember, the, the waiters would call them dinner hookers because <laughs> they would sort of wait for someone to buy them dinner. Hysterical. Know what the rest led to, but the, at least they got a dinner in the place, and the food was delicious. The food was fabulous, and yeah. and the last line of that movie of John and Mary, by the way, was. Dustin Hoffman says, hi, I'm John, and she says, hi, I'm Mary, because that was the point, was that they met at Maxwell's Plum, and they didn't even know each other's name, but they went home together, because that was kind of the, the times of the 70s. And, and speaking of that bar, you own that bar. Uh, tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, that was ironic, too, because when the restaurant ultimately had to close, they had an auction there. And, of course, you know, I, 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 every restaurant I've ever worked in, including McDonald's, you have to learn something. And one of the things I learned at Maxwell's was, the bar in the middle of the space just gave the whole synergy of that place energy. So uh, I bought the bar at auction um, for about $15,000. And then when we went to try to remove it, it was like cemented into the ground. So it sort of came out in splinters. But we had it milled uh, up in a place in Harlem and brought it back to the Tribeca Grill. And, of course, it sits right in the middle of the Tribeca Grill, which is now only open 26 years. Yeah. So I think it's, I think that bar has got a lot of stories. A lot of stories. And does does it have does it have action? Is is that still you know, a thing? It's, it's not like it's not like that at our bar, of course, but uh nowhere near what what, you know, Maxwell's Plum was like. I mean, that was just surging every night. Right. It was extraordinary. That was a, a craziness I, You know, you worked at so 250 seats and we would do close to 1000 dinners, you know, we do over 900 dinners on a Saturday, and then it was just extraordinary the amount of volume that we did out of that restaurant. It was, cr- and in both of us were basically right out of college, and you and Ivy Leaguer, me not so much. But, but okay, so so let's talk about that. So you you started out, and and your mom was in show business. Tell us about your mom. Yeah, no, my mother <clears throat> Sybil Trent was an actress on CBS Radio uh, as a child, a child actress in the '30s and '40s, mm-hmm. and this is even before television. And so, you know, we grew up in a very theatrical home. You know, she was always bringing home her colleagues. Um, and this show that she was on was uh, called Let's Pretend, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of the Sesame Street of its era. How cool. It uh, was live, and, you know, everyone played these roles of the famous uh, tales, you know, um, Jack and the Beanstalk, or, you know, just, it was, and they, it, it was just an amazing ensemble that she was a part of. And, of course, then as kids, you know, then she became she she did a Crisco Oil commercial and she did a Dristan commercial. So you know, you'd be watching television. Your mother's on the tube, and that was always impressive. She would go on the Joe Franklin show. You know, paint Joe Franklin paint. It ain't just paint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Hoffman beverages. And then um, my mother actually became a casting director for Young and Rubicam and worked over twenty five years. So then she became friendly with actors and actresses on their way up, people like Bernadette Peters or mm-hmm. Richard Gere, or, you know, she gave some of these people their first jobs most of the time in commercials. So it was just, a, you know, and my mother was very beautiful and very, 
just a lovely person. So it was it was a good environment. She married my father, who was 16 years her senior, and um, he worked for the State Liquor Authority, which licenses restaurants in New York. Ergo, when we were kids, you know, my father endeared himself to a lot of these uh, restaurateurs, and they would invite my father and the family in for dinner. And, you know, so as a kid, I'm eating at, like, these extraordinary French or Italian or German or Chinese restaurants, and I had this, you know, I mean, I, I just knew immediately this is what I was going to do for a living, which is, you know, pretty much what I, which I, is what I did. Because I had this amazing exposure. I always say it's a little like if you grow up with a piano in your house, your parents expose you to music, you gravitate towards music. We were exposed to all this amazing food, and, uh, you know, I gravitated towards it. And what did your father do for a living? That brought him to that? He was a lawyer for the State Liquor Authority. Okay. The State Liquor Authority in New York State licenses the restaurants. It's actually the State Liquor Authority. Like, you know, you think about it, you, you can't license people to carry a gun, but, you know, restaurants have to be licensed <laughs> to serve beverages. So, <laughs> Oy, you know. I'm laughing. It's also I'm a way not, for I'm the state laughing. to raise money because the licenses, you know, cost, I think today it's like $5,200, you know, to get a, a, a full liquor license. Which if you extrapolate that number over the thousands of bars and restaurants that are in New York City, you can imagine the revenue it brings in. But my father had a way of finagling the system, and he and the restaurateurs, you know, would want to reward him in a way, you know, by inviting us to eat in these restaurants. And you know, so he became lifelong friends with a lot of people. And my path, you know, follows pretty closely uh, what I was exposed to as a kid. Which is interesting because you kind of got the best of both your parents there because, yeah, the, I didn't know how you got into the restaurant, what what drew you to that. So this is great to get this story from you now. But I did know about your mom. Um, I actually went before her when she was a casting director. That was a terrifying experience. She told me I was too uh-huh. ethnic. And I want you to know because did of she your really mom. She did. And because <laughs> of your mom, I was trying to be a commercial actress at the time, which lasted about three minutes. But because of your mom, I changed my name from Cats to Keith. I dyed my hair blonde. I mean, she really impacted me like tremendously. Um, yeah, interesting. But, well, but my mother always took an interest in the actors and actresses. And I, I recall, even at a very young age, you know, where the talk around the dinner table was, "This one can't read," or "They have to cast this commercial on the West Coast because we couldn't bring in anybody that they liked on the East Coast," and all this kind of strange stuff. But uh, casting for movies and plays and commercials is pretty critical. You know, you have to find the, the right, uh, you know, the right uh, individual to, to play the role. And, and, and when, it, it, you know, some of the great casting directors who work with, you know, Woody Allen or uh, Marty Scorsese or Coppola, I mean, it, it, it can make or break a, a film. Absolutely. The casting director is a huge part of the process. And, yeah, huge part. Though. And it's interesting that, okay, so you knew right away that, you, did you ever dream of being an actor? Was that ever part of, because you had that exposure? Well, Vicki, so you're glossing over my uh, you know, my <laughs> career story here. I, I was, in fact, the Ivory Snow Baby in 1955. Oh, my God, I, I think I heard on the heard radio, I, I, I'd show you the photograph because it's in my phone of me and my mother, uh, and, you know, my, my mother holding me in the Ivory Snow box in the background. So that, that was a commercial that I did do. And then, uh, but my mother is a little bit, you know, she she didn't, you know, she was a child actress. Her mother died when she was 40 years old. Uh, and so my mother, I think, really wanted to be a mother. And uh, she kept this a sort of, you know, at arm's length from theatrical business. She made money, but, you know, she worked like, you know, as a child. And she kind of supported her mother and father. Wow. My grandfather, her father, was not a very industrious guy. So, I, I, you know, I, but restaurants, of course, are, are pure theater. You know, the lighting and the, the architecture and now... When I first worked in restaurants, my, my card used to say restaurant director, wow. say restaurant manager, because I, I was like, I was taking it on, like, you know, okay, turn down the lights over there, okay, you come over here. I, you know, I was like doing the direction, and I took it very much like that. You know, I, I, that's the way I approached You always I didn't, have? I didn't play, and... You know, I didn't play it like I'm, you know, I'm the, I have keys and I'm going to open, you know, the office kind of thing. I was more... Uh, yeah, I was directing. I mean, <laughs> that's what I was doing. And that, that's why you're so successful. You continue to, and you've always set the stage. And I, I, I imagine that's what drew you to Maxwell's Plum. Uh, Warner Leroy was the owner of that. His father, Mervyn Leroy, directed The Wizard of Oz. And Warner was definitely a director of restaurants as well. Right. No, I mean, first of all, he threw so much decor. There was 
so many tchotchkes. Oh, my God. Place. Do you remember that, that Tiffany ceiling in the back room was worth, what, a million dollars back then, I think? Unbelievable. I, unbelievable. I mean, and uh, yeah, actually, you know, when the restaurant closed, I told you about the auction, I got the bar. They took that ceiling apart. Yeah. And they brought it to the Russian tea room. Because I don't know if you remember, but he opened the Russian tea room and... It, it just never worked the same way, but the ceiling was there for a while. It's probably still there, actually. The Russian tea room still is open. It's different, man- uh, different ownership, but it's probably still there, I'll bet. I haven't been to the Russian tea room in a million years. Our friend Robin used to, and, and Warner used to work there. Uh, that's, that's correct, but I think they're not. <laughs> I, I've lost track of Hollis and uh, Mayor uh, Verna Meyer. I, I've lost track of. I do, uh, you know, like you do, we hear about certain people in certain places, but... Um, the one guy, he works for me at the Tribeca Grill, is, we used to call him Modesto. Um, he was a, a bar back. Now he's, a, he's been a waiter for us probably 26 years. He's been there from the beginning, but he looks exactly the same. You know, actually, we call him Miguel now. That's probably his real name. But uh, I don't know if you remember him, but he was always stoned. I, d- I do remember him, and, and that's the other thing that I, I wanted to say about you. I, I've known you all these years. You're, you're the most incredibly loyal uh, it's not just that you're a director and you create this environment, but also your person, the soul, the who you are. Um, I remember Sam Well was working for you for a while. There were a bunch of people yeah, that you oh, brought oh, with you. Exactly. Yeah, no, at the beginning, I thought, because, um, you know, I watch a lot of sports. And it, when you look at sports, if they can hold a group of uh, individuals together, you know, the whole essence of what a team is, um, you're liable to win more games. And I, I always related to that. The only disappointment I would tell you, Vic, was when I opened the Tribeca Grill, and we had a lot of people from Maxwell's Pump. A lot of people took advantage of the situation. I bet. Some people stole. Some people, yeah. you know, they, and unfortunately, you know, the, the worst came out of them uh, unexpectedly. You know, you, you don't want things like that to happen. But as these guys got older, you know, a lot of the cracks started to appear. So, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's... I'm I'm very fortunate because everything I've done, um, you know, really has worked out very well, and I've had uh, really a minimum of problems over the years. But you know me, I I, I initially was so drawn to rock and roll. Um, you know, as a kid, I used to smuggle a little Sony tape recorder into the uh, Fillmore East, <laughs> and I used to tape all these shows. Um, so I thought I had all these one of a kind uh, recordings of Elton John or Laura Nero or Neil Young or the Who and. Then, you know, our friend Bill Graham, when he passed away, they un- un- unveiled that he had recorded everything on both coasts. Right. And these were soundboard recordings. And, you know, his real name was not Bill Graham, it was Wolfgang Krasinka. Oh, I never so knew that. These guys, yeah, these guys, it's on, uh, it's called Wolfgang's Vault. And it has its own website. And they have all of these amazing recordings from Fillmore West, Winterland. Um, Do they have the Fillmore East? Yeah, no, they have like a lot of things. Some of the things that I have, uh, you can't find on the website, which leads me to believe that for whatever reason, maybe you know they just either didn't record or, or um, uh, the one that really impressed me, I have, I, I went to see Leon Russell, and Elton John was the uh, was the opening act, and that was the very oh first time God. Elton John had come to America. It was 1970, and um, now if you remember, about I guess it's about four or five years now. Uh, they re- they reunited, uh, uh, but they actually yeah. did a documentary together, and they, they had an album, they played at the Garden. So I, I took these uh, cassette recordings that I had, I put them on CD, I gave them to the president of the Madison Square Garden <gasps> to give to uh, Elton and Leon, and they were like, where the fuck did you get Holy, oh my and, God, uh, I love, yeah, you know, we pretty, were probably... And they're pretty good quality, to be honest with you, considering. Wow. We were, you <laughs> but, were I mean, probably that, that was, like... That was the whole thing, I mean, music... For me, but uh, then I saw what a dog-eat-dog business it was in the restaurants. Everybody seemed to treat each other with at least a, a fair amount of respect. Uh, so I, I, I stuck with the restaurant part of my career. Although you brought a lot of music into it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But you and I were probably at a bunch of concerts at the Fillmore East together because I was sneaking in at 15. We're the same age. So you were sneaking yeah. in, too. I, I saw Jethro Tull do Aqualung for the first time there. And, and oh, I, I saw remember, uh, Edgar Winter and, and uh, Johnny Winter there. and um, Oh, a bunch of shows, yeah. I, I mean, it was extraordinary because you get a three, uh, three bill. Like I remember right. one was Neil Young Crazy Horse, Steve Miller, uh, Blues Band, and Miles Davis. Jesus. I mean, there's more different you know, yeah. streams of music you couldn't put together 
the Who, Chuck Berry, and Albert King. Um, it was like weird stuff, but um, but it worked. It all worked. Interesting, you know, even when I didn't have a ticket, well, the tickets were only three fifty, four fifty, and five fifty. <laughs> I mean, for five dollars and fifty cents, you're sitting in a auditorium where they actually even gave you a program. Right. You know, and, and obviously the posters and everything like that live on. This Wolfgang's Vault, they, they sell all the re- replica posters, I guess, and, and the music you can download. But um, no, I even, you know, there were times I'd stand on the side of the street and listen through the stage door. I remember Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and uh, that guy uh, Clayton Thomas coming out and talking to us. And wow. Who, I mean, all these amazing shows. And but, it was actually uh, right in your neighborhood. It was like right in your back door. So really easy for you. I was right, and you say Queens. 15, and that's, that was the age, because in 1970, it only lasted about three years. I mean, I think at 68 to, like, 71, um, it was a very short-lived... Mm-hmm. It's hard to understand that, because so much music was produced. Um, but, it, you know, he sort of packed up and went back to the West Coast, and, of course, he, he did Woodstock and everything else. But It was uh, a very sorry day when he closed the Fillmore East. So, Drew, music lover that you are, and, and you've been incredible. We, we've seen a bunch of shows together over the years. In fact, my favorite is you took me to see Neil Diamond and not that long ago, and we were the only people in the entire like arena, whatever it was, that, wa- that wasn't standing, that wasn't singing every single word. And we were also the youngest people in the audience, which is saying a lot, considering I'm how not old we are. I'm narcissistic, but we were the most attractive. <laughs> We were also the most attractive, right? So we'll always have Neil Diamond. And then we saw. Also, uh, you you seem very impressed by Paul McCartney. Oh my God, Drew took me. Justin Drew took me to see Paul McCartney. Drew owns the restaurant that's in City Field, which is the Mets Stadium now. It's called City Field, and Drew has the restaurant in there. And so Paul McCartney was going to be there, and we got to sit through the 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 sound check which basically McCartney did the entire show we had to sit way back way further than we sat for the actual show but there were only like 10 of us and he did like the whole show do you remember that he did like the whole show for us uh, I think you know they do this thing for uh, what's the Make-A-Wish Foundation you know people pay an extraordinary amount of money for the For the sound check kind of thing. So ah, well, we were really. And by the way, recently I I, I never seen Beyonce except for halftime at the Super Bowl. I go to Super Bowls all the time, but I went to see Beyonce at City Field with my daughter uh, Gabrielle, and that was ridiculous. I mean, the show was insane. I don't know if you've caught her act, but it's like it's I have, so I've never seen her live. My kids adore, could not love her more. Um, I appreciate, but <laughs> I'm at the stage of my, my you know my life where. I think about, like, who have I not seen that I really would want to see? Because you've seen everybody. So anyway, okay, so lover of music that I know, and you've gotten to do, you know, you've gotten through your business to travel the world and see all the music you want and to go to all the concerts you want. And you've had incredible success. But let's talk a little bit about how that happened for you. Okay, so you decided you ate this great food with your dad and your mom, and you met all these celebrities. How, how much... Um, I know we share sort of a passion for celebrity, and, I'm, and, I, and I'd like to talk a little bit about what that is for you. My father was a master of ceremonies in the Catskills, and so, like you, I kind of grew up surrounded by that. And for me, it was the comics and the singers of the day, Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, and, you know, all the, the, you know, all the Jackie yeah, Mason no. and all of that stuff. And so I, Everybody was on the Ed Sullivan Show. I mean. And everybody was on the Ed Sullivan Show. And I, I was just, I always had stars in my eyes. To me, I was always attracted to to it. And if I try to, you know, articulate what it is about celebrity that pulls me, I'm not exactly sure. Although I think it's, I think I wanted to be them. I wanted to be around them. I always wanted to be Johnny Carson. That, that to me, that would be uh-huh. like the ultimate. Cause then I'd get to talk with everybody that I loved and sort of be in their, in their path in, in a way. I don't know. But so you managed. I think, I think celebrity in the era of the sixties and seventies, when we were growing up, was more about earned notoriety mm-hmm. based on talent, mm-hmm. based on a lot more lo- longevity. Even if you were like a one-hit wonder, at least that one hit was extraordinary. Right. Um, for me, you know, uh, basically, I was in high school in New York City. I was going to great high school. I was in high school. The McDonald's had not gone to inner city until the late se- in the early seventies, and so in seventy-two, I got a job on 23rd Street and 1st Avenue at a McDonald's. You know, I started way, out in a McDonald's also, by the way. 
Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I worked okay. at a McDonald's on Queens Boulevard when I was in high school, which was also like 72. God, that's crazy. Great experience, right? Yeah. I was a crew chief. Yeah. And then, you know, when I got to Cornell, I went to Cornell Hotel School, right. which is the preeminent school for, you know, restaurant hotel management. Yeah, Ivy League, so my when friend. When I got up there, uh, it, it, it was a little bit deficient in what I thought like I was going to be taught. I, I thought it would be more on the... A uh, line of a, like a uh, European cooking school, mm-hmm. and it was more management oriented. So, when I was 18, freshman, I, wa- I was walking the hallways. I saw science, and I'm looking for six students experienced in Russian service to travel to the following ports. And it was like Oslo, uh, Dublin, Leningrad, uh, Copenhagen. It was a, a cruise, um, uh, the 42 day cruise on the MS Vista Fjord that would go all over Scandinavia and uh, the midnight sun areas of Norway. Wow. And I, I had very, I had ne- never really worked as a waiter. Mm-hmm. And I, I called the guy up, I told him I had tremendous experience, he hired me. <laughs> and I got on uh, the ship in uh, the summer of 1974. I was the only American out of 60 waiters. The, 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 the dining room was 600 seats. Wow. Veritable football field. Wow. And you, you'd work every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh. Uh, and you served off of platters. Like, you know, that's what Russian service was. Is like more like a, when you go to a banquet in the old days, anyway, they put all the food on a platter and you'd have to go from platter to plate. So imagine the kitchen's downstairs on a cruise ship by escalator and you got these heavy trays because everything's on a steel platter, oh, metal my platter. And so that was my initiation, and I went back on the cruise uh, ships. They had another ship called the Saga Fjord, so I went back over the four years I was a student at college. And you have to understand, that these restaurants served absolutely phenomenal food mm. for 600 people. Wow. You know, and, that, and it was not just the breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There was midnight snacks. Oh, of course. Smorgasbord. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, it was an absolute education for me. Also, the menu was written in culinary terms, so you, you'd have to really understand if the menu said consomme celestine, you'd have to know that celestine was a julienne of a crepe that they were garnishing the soup with. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, cauliflower, um, creme soup du barry was a uh, cream of cauliflower. Mm-hmm. So you had to know this stuff. And, and so for me, it was extremely, uh, it, it's really supplemented my education. I came back um, much more confident, and that's really what it's about. You know, uh, to be good at what you do, you have to have experience and you have to have the professional knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then you don't kid yourself, and you have to have the confidence in what you know to, to lead or inspire. But you know, as a student at Cornell, the, I, I, my, one of my jobs one summer was at Maxwell's Pond. That's how I was introduced to that restaurant in 1976. When I graduated in 77, they liked me. They invited me to come back. You know, I was paid $300 a week. You were making $300 a night, I think. But, yeah, uh, you were, you were my manager. <laughs> yeah, I got to eat at the end of the night. Though, like, you know, that was my big, you know. Right. That was my. But anyway, the point is, you know, now I went from a cruise ship experience to a management experience, managing a, uh, a place like Maxwell's, and then Warner also in '76 opened the Tavern on the Green, right. which obviously was this extraordinary spot in the middle of Central Park. And so in '78 they transferred me over there, and I worked there pretty much into the early '80s. Then I wound up working at a lot of French restaurants. Okay, wait. I, I want to stop you for just yeah. a second. While you were doing this at Maxwell's, at Tavern on the Green, moving on to the French restaurants, did you? When did you get it in your head? Did you always know that you were going to have your own play? How did that happen? Yes, yeah, so I, I mean, listen. You know, from the sixties, um, when Muhammad Ali was going, "I am the greatest," make some, make no mistake about it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you know. Everyone takes on Muhammad Ali as like a, an important figure in their life. For me, it was like the most important thing because here's a guy, he, he not only won, he was bragging that he wanted, you know, that he was the greatest, but, you know, and that was, so, so you say to yourself, okay, so I have to aspire to greatness, but what I'm going to be doing is food, and so, I, yeah, I mean, right from the very beginning, you know, I had, I had seen so many different kinds of restaurants, so even when I went to Cornell, when people said to me, what are you going to want to do when you graduate, I said, I'm going I'm to open a bunch of restaurants, so that was always... 
know, that was always my goal. And so it was always and your goal. It took and so, a little longer than I thought, by the way, but then I, I, I sort of made up for lost time. You but, made up uh, in spades for a long time, and it didn't take you that long at all. Like, did you have a plan? Okay, so I'm, did, was it a financial thing that it took you some time, or did you decide you wanted to learn at these places before? No, was it both? I mean, I, I think at that time, um, when I was working in a lot of these different places, I was young, of course, and people would come up to me and say, if you ever want to open your own place, we'll, we'll support you. And then, of course, wow. when I started looking to open my own place, and I went to those same people, most of them were like, uh, well, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe another time. So what eventually basically happened is in 1983, um, I actually ran the New York Marathon. Because the marathon ends at Tavern on the Green, which is where I was managing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I watched it every year, and I was like, i I got, I got to run this thing. So I ran the, the marathon, and uh, one day I was running in New York in lower Manhattan, and I said, every Sunday I would look at the business opportunity section of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And there were always listings of spaces available. Mm-hmm. So I ran to this one location in Tribeca, 1,500 square feet for $1,500 a month. $1,500 a month is $50 a day. Yeah. That was what the rent was. Mm-hmm. And I actually signed the lease without having any investors. Wow. And then when I went out to get an investor, I couldn't find any investors. So essentially, I took well, I just want to add in paid. here, Drew, that at that time, Tribeca was nothing. I mean, there was nothing. Yeah, I mean, it was, well, I, having grown up in New York, I knew the city. I mean, you know, obviously today, areas that you couldn't even walk through, like Houston Street. Right. Or, you know, Bowery was like a joke. It was like, you know, that's where the bums hung out. Lower East Side, you know, maybe you ventured there to go to Katz's, but that was also dangerous. Right. And then, you know, um, I actually took music lessons. I played violin at the Third Street uh, Music School. I had to dodge getting mugged every time I, you know, a little boy carrying a violin case, you know. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and did you have glasses Second then, Avenue and Third Street, you know. <laughs> What's that? Did you have glasses then? A real target? Yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. But I, I also want to just tell the, the, the listeners that you basically created Tribeca. I mean, you made Tribeca a destination. Well, I right? mean, the Odeon, of course, was down there. The Odeon was extraordinary because they'd taken over a, like an old cafeteria. Right. And they brought in a black guy by the name of Patrick Clark as the chef who had studied in France. And, and he, you know, in this funky downtown area, he started doing like this extraordinary French food. Mm-hmm. And so he, you know, the Odeon, which is, by the way, still operates on the corner of Thomas and West Broadway. I mean, that was a precursor. We, you know, we got there in 85, and, you know, Morache, you know, like I'd run the marathon in 83, put my life savings into uh, this location. Uh, we're still working at all these French restaurants, but I, I decided to call it Morache and found this extraordinary, talented chef by the name of David Boulay, who, of course, you know, mm. had a phenomenal career. Hell yeah. And, we, you know, we opened in 1985, and seven weeks after we opened, we got three stars from the New York Times, and we were serving a six dollar menu, three course menu for one six. I mean even at Maxwell's Plum our prices way you know, more entrees for sixteen dollars, you know, or more. Hamburger was probably sixteen bucks. Maybe. Yeah, right. Sure, the bread was almost sixteen dollars. Do you, know, you remember we used to charge for bread? It was three dollars yeah, for, for a basket of bread. Seventy five for a basket of bread. But so it, it was like, you know, uh, the restaurant uh, getting a three star review from the New York Times I could have filled the Shea Stadium with the amount of calls because of the $16. Jesus. But I took my time, and then, you know, one day a, a guy by the name of Robert De Niro showed up in the restaurant and proposed doing another restaurant. Okay, I just want to say, by the way, that I was there the night. I was there. I was at Montrachet with my mother and my friend Joanne celebrating my birthday, and in the next booth was Robert De Niro, and you brought out... Uh, a plate with a cake on it, and it was written Tribeca Grill because you had just made your deal like that. Like I don't know if it was signed that day, and I was there that day, that night. Crazy boy. De Niro used to actually like to um, you know, celebrate his birthdays. I have one shot where he's sitting at a table with Chris Walken, Jessica Lang, uh, Marty Scorsese, uh, Bill Murray. This is probably like 1991 or something. Like so that. I was going to say, how did that, how did that, that business relationship with you and De Niro happen? Yeah, you know, he came in as a customer. He was dating Tookie Smith, who was this vivacious, you know, black model sister of Willie Smith of Willie Ware. And uh, you know, she he barely talked, but she would always say, "Bob wants to know 
if you'd like to do another restaurant in Tribeca, and I was like, you talking to me because there's <laughs> nobody else here. So, and, really? You know, it was Tukey that said it to you? Yeah, Tukey, you know, and Bob, I guess Bob had this idea for years to do a, a Tribeca Film Center for, you know, that's basically what he actualized. Right. Tribeca Film Center where, you know, uh, there were casting people and creative people from the film industry. And on the bottom floor, there would be a cantina, there would be a restaurant, if you will, where they could all congregate and share notes and things like that. So, of course, Bob and Harvey Weinstein are original partners. You mentioned Bill Murray and Sean Penn, Chris Walken, Ed Harris. Wow. Uh, Russell Simmons is an original partner. Wow. Uh, Richard Krasnow was the head of uh, Electra Records. Mikhail Baryshnikov, no. Mikhail Baryshnikov, of course, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, that was a big deal because you're, you're marketing on the names of all the celebrity, if you will. That, that sort of plays into what you were asking me earlier, which is, you know, we sort of fell into it. I mean, um, I, of course, I, I was, you know, I say it was extraordinary. I mean, you have a restaurant like uh, Morachet, which was very humble, and, you know, now suddenly all these people are showing up at your doorstep, Robin Williams, and, and uh, but, I mean, De Niro asking me to do the restaurant was, you know, on a different level. I, I, I still have the original papers where, you know, I'm, it's my signature and all the investors. So I've seen it's a page with Bill Murray or <laughs> Harris or any of those people. It's kind of fun. Absolutely. And then, you know, uh, but we delivered the goods. And, uh, you know, New York's a little bit about build you up to tear you down. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of anticipation on certain things that don't live up to the hype, whether it's a Broadway show or a restaurant. So we, we lived up to it. And it's that's there now for 26 years. And, of course, it, it basically became the precursor of Nobu, right? Which you know took another four years. I mean, we opened Tribeca in 1990, Nobu in '94, Rubicon in San Francisco with Francis Ford Coppola and Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, right? '94. Yeah. You know, those are those are two. I mean, it's extraordinary to open two great restaurants. In fact, that year '94, we were they, those were both nominated against each other as Best New Restaurant in America at the Beard Awards, which is, you know, like having two movies in that category. So, I mean, you know, that's basically how it started. They, uh, we'd have a success, we'd parlay it into another success, we'd parlay that into a greater success, and then I kind of created a vehicle, you know, where I was hoping that, you know, that if it, uh, it wasn't just about myself. I wanted to create an, uh, an infrastructure where other people could make a, a buck, that's when we created what we call the Myriad Restaurant Group, where we started to consult to hotels or resorts, like the W Hotels we launched, the Boca Resorts in Florida. And then, and we, you know, the Novas were starting to prolifer- proliferate to London. Now there's 33 Novas around the world. How did Novas how start? How, did, how was that born from Tribeca? Well, well that's a great question. Wait, before, before, we, get, actually, wait, before we get to Nobu. Tribeca yeah. Grill, did it, was it, and I believe that I, I know the answer to this, but did it become what De Niro set out for it to do? Was it that meeting place for the, the movie people? And- oh, uh, it, 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 let's put it this way. It, it absolutely surpassed any yeah. possible expectation. If you think about it, we were open in 1990 after 2001 and the whole tragedy of Lower Manhattan and the World Trade Center. Which I also you wanted know, to talk to you about. All right, so let's stop here for a second. After 9-11, you opened your doors for the firefighters and yeah, for the I rescue mean, but workers. The, the, I guess the, what I was going to say is that the, the film festival mm-hmm. was also what came out of the whole 9-11, but the film festival in its earliest years was built on the reputation of the businesses that were already established in Tribeca, of which Tribeca Grill was very important. Um, but 9-11, of course, everyone, it was a great moment. And if you, if you think about it, the aftermath of the tragedy, because people... There was great community. There was, uh, you know, sort of a solidarity, and it worked. I mean, the city actually, you know, came together. It unfortunately, it didn't come together for that for as long as it should have. Mm-hmm. But you were you were right there. I mean, I you were right in the thick of it, and you opened your doors and you were serving food to the rescue workers. Yeah, I mean, everybody did something. That that was the whole point of the, you know, I mean, we what we did was more, you know, spontaneous because we were right there and mm-hmm. we could. Everybody, again, wanted to pitch in to do something. Mm-hmm. What I always remember is the imagery of the day after. Uh, you know, there were like cans of food on the corners, and I was like, well, I, that's not helping anybody because you know, the can, they don't have a can opener, but yeah. it's also hot. 
How are you going to heat that up? So the idea was people were trying to figure out. I mean, after a lot of these tragedies, like even the shootings in Newtown, I, I saw a piece where you know people sent all these toys or dolls, or but they sent thousands, you know, and there are only so many children there. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the point is, is that everybody wanted to do something, and we all we all did our part. It was a good moment. You but, had a lot of those you know, moments. The, the thing with the restaurants and me was uh, I set out to try to do a lot of different things. Murad means endless and countless, and that's kind of the mission I was on, to do all sorts of things. You know, I opened my house, which was in a, in a Vietnamese restaurant. I opened um, a restaurant in Martha's Vineyard in a beautiful resort. I opened, uh, you know, we opened in Dublin. We had a place in Moscow. We did all sorts of great things. I mean... And now, uh, you know, I can look back over my shoulder and say, look, you know, the very first restaurant I opened, Morichet, has morphed into Betard, which is 31 years later. Tribeca Grill is 26 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Nobu is 22 years later. And all over I the mean, world. It's one amazing thing after another. And then, yeah, yeah, just to get to Nobu, because Bobby De, uh, De Niro wanted Nobu to be the chef of Tribeca Grill, which was actually a moment of very bad casting. I mean, it was like, you know, like... Was I, that like, from the beginning? You couldn't, you didn't want to go against Bob, but, you know, yeah. it was kind of like, I was, so we, we, Nobu came to New York, we all met, and, you know, Nobu looked at us, and he was like, well, you know, maybe one day I'll do something with you, but this is too big, and mm. you know, I breathed a sigh of relief, but then I made it my business to find a vehicle for Nobu in New York, and I did, I mean, and that's when we opened right up the block at uh, 105 Hudson, it's been there for 22 years, and it's, you know, Nobu is arguably the single most influential chef restaurant that's really almost ever happened. It's, it, it, it's, inf it's actually influenced everything, every chef. Some of the great Spanish chefs talk about Nobu with reverence, the cast, all the great French chefs. And, you know, when you were talking about celebrity before, what, what really was the case with me was the chefs were becoming celebrities. Mm -hmm. But they, they weren't in America. The sh those chefs were all the French guys. Mm -hmm. But I, I went to France in 1980. Before you know, I opened any of my restaurants, and I revered these people. And you know what? They delivered. And to this day, the Paul Bocuse's, the Roger Vergers, the, the Freddy Girardet's, all these great French chefs, um, you know, that sort of set the table for me. And, and there, were, there was one guy, and he came from uh, the south of France. He opened at the Watergate Hotel in Washington. Mm -hmm. His name was Jean-Louis Paladin. And he was the most French guy you've ever met, but he accepted us. You have to understand, most of the French guys were like America, you know, they set up a place for food, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but he accepted us, and he saw how hard we were working, and he basically validated what it was that we were doing. Now, this poor guy passed away many years ago of lung cancer, but to this day, his influence, and by the way, his food was just unbelievable. Wow. And he was one of these French guys that he didn't, he didn't hide behind French products. You know, the French chefs up to that time said, the, the butter is better in France, the oysters are better in France, you know. Instead, he'd come to this country and he'd find, like, the lone oysters in Maine and he'd find, you know, unbelievable free-range chickens in Virginia. And, mm. I mean, you know, th th this is really what changed the, the world of food in America. Guys like me, restaurateurs, we're now dinosaurs, Vic. The, the, it's the chefs who have taken over. Well, you, help, you helped make team. chefs rock stars. Oh, yeah, because, no, yeah. I, cre I created the Frankenstein. There's no question about <laughs> it. But the point is that the public relates to the chef. Absolutely. They don't relate to the, the restaurateur. I've never looked at myself as a business person in the restaurant business, the food business. I've always looked at myself as a creative person and the restaurateur as being, a, you know, I, what I'm doing is, you know, again, like I've always related like I'm a director. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun that I have, you know, this, this uh, group of investors who, by the way, 26 years ago, they were, you know, they were famous, but they weren't famous like they are today. I mean, Robert De Niro had this amazing instinct that these people were not only his friends, but they, they, they've, you know, their careers are extraordinary. You know, look at Bill Murray and uh, yeah, Chris Walken. I mean, yeah. it's just uh, extraordinary. I mean, absolutely. So I, it's a kick in the ass for me. Obviously, I love it. So I went, uh, you know, my, my, my life's just been tremendous. We uh, just got back yesterday from Aspen where we did the Aspen Food and Wine Festival. Um, they flew us out there on a Bombardier jet. I think you might have seen some of I things. saw the picture of the little, yeah, the little plane. You know, so we're getting our rewards now in little little waves. But the one thing I would tell you and anybody listening is that we, we really raised the bar on the quality of food in America, not just in New York or, you know, the places where we open our restaurants. America is, is just a, such a, a more amazing place. Every 
have a good meal of every ethnic background possible. I mean, sushi everywhere and great Italian restaurants. And what what are some of your uh, your favorite restaurants in America to dine in? Well, I mean, you know, my, my all time favorite is something that's into, like an institution is Joe Stone Crab in, wow. in Miami Beach because there's just something so delicious about and, and simple about great stone crabs. But I just got back from Philadelphia where my friend Mark Redtree is, you know, the king of the Italian restaurants and uh, Daniel Blue, John George Von Gerichten in New York, or you know, they're extraordinary chefs who, you know, their restaurants have also uh, proliferated on the West Coast. You know, in San Francisco, you have Michael Mina, who actually was an intern years ago at, T- at Tribeca Grill. You have wow. Wolfgang Puck's Supreme. You know, it's like, everywhere you turn. I mean, there's just great food. There is great food, and and okay, so uh, uh, not to be a downer or anything, but I'm just. For our sake, had, did anything not work in your? Because it seems like it's been one massive success after the next. You've won James Beard awards all over the place. Did anything not work? Was anything a failure? Yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, it, you know, I, I I pretty much say everything always worked creatively. It didn't necessarily always work financially. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I had a restaurant called the Berkeley Bar and Grill in the Sony Building. So I had a tie dye menu. I had hash brownies <laughs> dessert. You know, obviously it wasn't real hash, but mm-hmm. Um, I played West Coast rock. I had, you know, the Grateful Dead and, uh, you know, all the Quicksilver Messenger Service playing on the, you know, on the loudspeaker. And then you although had, you know I now you'd be able to have real hash in the brownies because it's legal here, but that's, probably yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I had, uh, you know, pictures for the, the, actually I lived in uh, an apartment in uh, Tribeca where the woman whose name is going to escape me, of course did the original photographs of the Fillmore East. So it was, wow. that was extraordinary. I had those up. But for whatever reason, that was, it just wasn't well received. You know, at Berkeley, I was, I was like, well, we don't want to do another French restaurant. We don't want to do another Italian. Alice Waters, Berkeley, yeah, that, let's do that. Mm-hmm. It was ahead of its time. Yeah, yeah. Um, that one comes to mind. And then, another, you know, sometimes you try too hard. We had one place called City Wine and Cigar. You know, what's great, to smoke cigars and eat food? I don't think so, but you know, I was... <laughs> that point i was a cigar smoker so you know and and uh, but none of the restaurants were bombs you know they always right. food was always good they just you know they didn't resonate uh, necessarily um, it was always really what happened is you know nova was such an amazing success it's very hard that when you reach a pinnacle and you never know when you're at a pinnacle by the way mm-hmm. to, to to do better work um, you know you have paul simon who has an album out you if you mentioned the monkeys, maybe they're doing better work now. I don't know. But, you know, with Bob Dylan, you know, it's, it's very hard once you establish a certain level to, to surpass that level. So in restaurants, for me, I didn't want to cookie cut, you know, the same restaurant over and over again. My partners in Nobu did. Um, so, you know, I sort of went on a path a little bit different from them on some of the expansion. And, 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 but and what I learned was, you know, the people really liked Nobu. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, Drew, we like you. You're very creative. Uh, we're going to go to Noble. <laughs> you know, so oh, like, I'm sorry to say, well, I'm not sorry to say, but it's my favorite restaurant in the world. And I've eaten there yeah, with you no. many times. And eating at Nobu with you is an experience that everybody in this world should get to have at some point in their life. Yeah, no, you're right. That's no question. But I can't wait to go to Batar. So that, that's the other thing is that you've kept this baby that's yours that started as Montrachet and went Corton and now Batard. And you've had incredible success in that space. And that's something yeah. you've kept away from from the group, from the investor. That's your that's your baby, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but you know, when I was younger, to get to this moment in time, thirty years later, would have been like you know, basking in the glory of having created a New York institution. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't know why the generation of parents didn't teach their siblings, and, and those were the restaurants they should go to because today, it, it, it's really all about. You know, we, we've really, it's in a good way, the food's great, but we've casualized all the experiences in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is it's an experience to go to a taco place or a food truck or look out for the best pizza or whatever, and hamburger. And, and so the restaurants, you know, like what we set out to do to raise the bar, to refine the food, blah, 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 uh, you know, this generation just doesn't really care about that. So we're sort of left, you know, we become dinosaurs in a certain way, and I, no, well, you know, maybe so. You know, you'll run the length of your lease, and then the rest will close. We've seen it already. The Four Seasons is closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Twenty 
one club or Rainbow Room clothes, and then you know they tried to re- replicate something now, but it's totally different. Tavern on the Green, you know, closed, and when it was restored, of course, it's just sort of languishing there. It's not anywhere near what what it was. Yeah. Good, better, and different. But um, and look, even uh, yeah, but you know, times change, people change. It yeah, but meanwhile, change. to get a table at Batard is still like forget about it. You yeah. Know? You yeah, have to no, know. I you mean, have to know the king. I'm, there's no sour, no sour grapes on my end. I'm just like, it, it, it's just that uh, the the baton used to be passed from generation to generation to support the restaurants, and then of course we lost almost every historic French restaurant, Lutest, La Caravelle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one like the Perigord where I work still exists, but it's so you know so much different today than it. You know, it was revered, of course, but uh, you know. It's fine. I, I just, I'm happy. I, I, I look over my shoulder and I said, you know, it just couldn't have really worked any better. And then whatever didn't work financially, I think we were smart and didn't keep it going uh, for a long time. I've never squandered money. I've been very conservative as a business person, you know, so feel good about that. And yet you've gotten to live sort of the life of your dreams. I've watched you. You, you travel the yeah, world I mean, and follow Springsteen yeah, my life, everywhere. And you know, my life is I'm, everything I do is my lifestyle. So when I go to work, you know, that's as enjoyable to me as if I get on a plane like on Wednesday I'm going to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, because we do an event there for their Philharmonic, raise money for their uh, art center. Um, and, you know, Jackson Hole, Wyoming is like one of the most gorgeous places in the world, so I invite chefs from around the country, and they all fly in. And it's just, you know, so this is what makes it interesting for us. And these festivals, by the way, whether they're in Miami or... Charleston or Atlanta, uh, Los Angeles, Pebble Beach. I mean, they're all these. These things have become, you know, they're like the Woodstock of, of the food world. I've you know, gone to LA Food and Wine with you a couple times, or met right. you there, and that's great fun. Every chef in the Remember world. Remember train? Train played it. Yeah, that was fabulous. Fantastic. And you do so much philanthropy. I mean, you, you uh, what's fabulous about you, Drew, aside from the quality of your product and the beauty of your restaurants, is that you're a, you're a fantastic human being. You've done... Yeah, you know, I, I, I tell you, the, the Meals on Wheels, Madison Square Garden has the Garden of Dreams. I'm, I'm on the board there. Um, we've done, you know, AIDS charities. I was just honored by the American Cancer Society. Taste of Hope, there's Taste of the Jets, there's Taste of the NFL. Yeah, I mean, it's countless. We probably do an event every month. And we just we don't just do it once. We pretty much have done this over a 20-year period. So we sort of put our money where our mouth is. Absolutely. It was just phenomenal. And so how, so tell us, let's see, let me see if you have a story for us. So everybody in the world wants a table at your restaurants, whether it be Nobu, Tribeca Grill, Batard. So how do you juggle all of that? Have you ever had to say no to somebody? I mean, like, what happens if, like... Uh, well, like it's kind of weird. My, in my Wikipedia, I don't know how... Maybe I told the story and it somehow got into the Wikipedia, but um, Henry Kissinger, <laughs> I think, was trying to get in one night, and that was sort of at a moment where the politics, you know, who I wasn't necessarily aligned with my thinking... <laughs> I think I politely turned down Henry Kissinger. I don't necessarily feel I would have done that again. But, I mean, you know, the one thing about Nobu is we, every single night, mm-hmm. there's going to be somebody there, whether it's, um, you know, I mean, it, it could be Taylor Swift or, uh, you know, Jonas or Bruce Willis or, you know, every night it's somebody. So uh, the restaurant, thank goodness, has a lot of seats. And, you, you know, if you're professional, you want to accommodate people who want to go there, whether it's about booking in advance or spontaneously trying to come, you know, if they're in the mood for that. So, right, and I, they're I calling you personally, though. I mean, I've know. seen you with your dueling phone. You've got the phone, the hotline phone, like the, yeah, yeah. The, the serious well, I finally phone. learned how to put one phone on hold and actually call and then come <laughs> back, but because for years I couldn't do that, so I had two phones. But, I mean, I listen, I'm on Instagram. I'm, 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 You're on I, Instagram? I Get out of media. here. You have yeah, social no, media? Yeah, I Instagram. Uh, and I, I'm socially challenged, but I actually do a pretty good uh, job with my Instagram. I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook because my kids, uh, in the earliest days of that, said, you're not doing that, Dad. You know, so what's you know, your Instagram? How can we find you on Instagram? It's just my name, Drew Okay. Laporte. All right. I, I didn't even know you were on Instagram. And 
we're actually friends. So, all right, before we go, Drew, I, I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you've accomplished so much. You've lived your dreams. You've manifested them. You've, you're, keep, you're still going. Is there anything ahead of you, by the way, before I get to that? Is there anything you haven't done that's still something you'd like to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, I've, uh, I say this a lot. I, ha- I, I really would like, as probably my last restaurant, to do a, like a quintessentially great modern Chinese restaurant. Wow. I love Chinese food. Actually, you know, I was there tonight at, actually in Chinatown. But I, I think there's just uh, there's a little... Spe- like I don't like to follow. I like to sort of be ahead of things. Yes. And um, so I think there's always a place... As, as a good Jew, I think there's always a good place for Chinese food in New York City. Do you have Do you have like a plan? Do you have like a plan? A thought like of where you want to take it or what you want to do with it? Yeah, but it's a little outrageous. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you'll see if I can actualize this. It will be in the next two years. So we'll see what happens. Fantastic! My favorite restaurant in L.A. is Din Tai Fung. Have you ever been? No, I've heard of it, so maybe we have to check that out. Well, yeah, we got to go when you're here. There's actually one in Shanghai, and there's a couple out here, and it's it's dim sun, and it's unbelievable. It's really my yeah, favorite no, place I, in L.A. Jay West, Jay West still writes a newsletter, and I think he wrote about it recently. Oh, very cool. Okay, so here's my last question for you. So just to make you a little human, because you seem a little too perfect here with everything going on and everything hitting and being so successful – do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah, I mean, other than a good sex, I would say <laughs> a guilty pleasure would be ice cream. Ah. <laughs> I would eat ice cream every day if I could. So. What's your favorite ice cream? Yeah, chocolate ice cream. Or, well, Drew, I want to thank you so much. It was uh, I learned a lot. I, did, I can't believe after 38 years I learned so much about you, but I did, and I'm so grateful. A little trip down memory lane, Vic. It's been uh, an extreme pleasure. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this, Drew. I'm so grateful. Nice to meet you, Jeff. Nice meeting you too, Drew. Take care. I'm looking forward to that Chinese restaurant. <laughs> okay. Take, take care. care. Good night. So, Justin, my yeah. friend Drew is a pretty cool guy, huh? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I think the takeaway for me from Drew was to be good at what you do, get experience at it, get the professional knowledge, and you have to have confidence in what you know. So you have to learn and you have to be schooled so that when you go out to do what you're going to do, you do it with confidence. And that seems to be the basis of his success is getting really, you know, learning everything he could about food, about wine, about, you know, about hospitality. And because he he felt confident in his knowledge, he was able to move forward with confidence, you know, building his empire. And I think that's a lot of the secret of his success. He is so good, Justin, at what he does. I mean, it's not just that his restaurants have the best food and they look great and all of that. The way they take care of people there is just unbelievable. You know, everybody's treated like a king and respectfully and beautifully and it's fun. It's He's he's just great at what he does, and I love him to death, and I'm really glad we had a chance to uh, to have this conversation with him. So thanks for this, Justin, and I look forward to uh, next week, and um, we'll see you back here next Tuesday on The Road Taken. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 Eastern Time for The Road Taken on Conversations Radio Network. And follow us on the Facebook at Vicki Abelson. Follow us on Twitter at Vicki Abelson. On Instagram at Vicki Abelson. And I know this is shocking, but on the interweb at VickiAbelson.com. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine. And she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. She just totally captures the excitement of of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In in a good way. Not, Not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicki wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. This is Shelley Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. 
You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or at a bookstore near you. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network.